The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Hi, everybody. Welcome to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. It is an unseasonably warm December day here in Massachusetts. Uh, and I have to say, white Christmas is looking less and less likely, and I'm really okay with that. We got 10 feet of snow last year, so I'm all right with that. But much more importantly for the purposes of today's program, uh, early application decisions are starting to come in. Uh, so if you applied early action or early decision, a lot of those uh, decisions from the schools are starting to come. And for some of you, this is going to be a little bit of a wake-up call. So if you or if you're a parent, if you're a student or one of those people who figured you were done once you press submit on your apps, um, you might be entering a bit of a panic mode if the results weren't what you'd hoped for. But don't worry. Uh, my colleague, Cara Courtois, is here to help with advice about finding some safer options and triaging the application process so that you can get some more applications out within the next few weeks and hopefully get better news in the spring. Um, for those of you about to complete college, Jean Mahan is going to walk us through some additional things to consider as you enter the education loan repayment phase. But first, um, we're going to be talking to all those future doctors out there who might be investigating BSMD programs, um, which are programs that are going to allow you to combine undergrad and grad admissions into one process. And I'm super excited to welcome my colleague, Mary Sue Yoon, who's a former admissions officer at Barnard College and who has worked with a number of students applying to these programs um, to the show today. And she's going to talk to us about how the process works. Hi, Mary Sue. How are you today? I'm doing okay. Uh, And thanks for joining us and uh, coming on to talk about these programs because I definitely find that I have, if I have a student who's interested in pre-med, they usually have a question about the BSMD programs. Um, And so I'm excited to talk about these today. I think the first question I have for you is, um, what is the BSMD program itself? So these are programs where a student can apply from high school to an accelerated med program. And with that accelerated med program, um, they are essentially getting out of the way their undergraduate and their graduate medical application all at once. You apply once and in their senior year of high school, and if accepted to the program, then the student, um, that's pretty much it. It guarantees them acceptance into their undergraduate years and then also acceptance into uh, a medical program after that. Uh, Now, some of the programs are different in sort of the way that they um, structure the application process, but oftentimes it's kind of two phases to it. So we can talk a little bit more about that perhaps. Okay. So, well, before we get into that, I do think if you're thinking about medical school and you heard about this program, maybe today is the first time, I'm sure immediately you're thinking, well, that's really interesting because – you know, the national acceptance rate into medical school is only about 50%. So why wouldn't you want to get that all done all at once? Um, But I think there's a big caveat here, which Mm -hmm. is that these programs tend to be pretty darn selective. So who is this program typically right for? Right. And so, and the programs, there can be two types of programs. There are some schools that have seven-year programs and there are some schools that have eight-year programs. So a seven-year program, um, generally uh, undergraduate education is four years, and then the graduate medical school ap- uh, education is an additional four years. So the, generally that's eight years if you add that up. So um, the seven-year programs would be taking a year off of your experience, um, which often means that the student is going to have to accelerate their undergraduate education and really complete their undergraduate education in three years, and then they would have a four-year medical block. 
Um, so, I mean, I found that the students that are most successful in applying to and, and really being in these types of programs are students who, um, you know, maybe they have known for a long time that they wanted to be a doctor, but they've also taken some action on that in high school. So maybe um, they've uh, done some uh, scientific research that's in the medical field. Um, maybe they've done something like uh, become certified as an EMT and actually, um, it depends on your area, but sometimes students as early as 16 or 18 can kind of do that. Um, so they're, they're not just thinking about a medical career, but they've, also, they've already taken some action in high school towards shadowing or being exposed to that medical field beyond just sort of the basic hospital volunteer work, but um, they've really gotten into a more clinical situation. So I find that the students are very mature in the way that they look at medicine, um, which is good because the programs are going to be evaluating them. The medical faculty that will be evaluating their applications are really stacking them up against students who are um, students who have graduated from their undergraduate years and are actually med school applicants. They have to show that abnormally high level of maturity to be a right fit for this type of program. Right. And I think, you know, when I've had students who are interested in this, these programs, one of the questions I always ask them first is, why do you want to be a doctor? Mm-hmm. And my um, one of my very closest friends who is a doctor and who has done admissions on the medical side, you know, if one of the first things students say is, well, I really want to help people, well, that's fine. You can there are so many different ways in the world you could help people. That's not a great answer for why you want to be a doctor. I know that when I'm talking to those students, I am looking for that level of maturity, a little more insight into what the life of a doctor is going to be like, um, a little bit more of an academic inclination to medicine rather than mm-hmm. just, oh, I really want to help people and things like that. What are some other things that you look for when you have a student in your office who is interested in this type of a program and, and kind of already starting? to think in your own head, well, this person's going to be competitive or not? Yeah. Um, Well, some of the things that I think about is, you know, I ask students if they have really thought through, yes, uh, oftentimes they sort of um, concentrate on the fact that, hey, I'd be guaranteed entrance into medical school, and they focus on that aspect. And what I do tend to say is that their undergraduate experience um, may be very different in these types of programs because in general, a lot of the schools that offer accelerated med programs tend to be some larger state schools. Um, So Penn State has a program, University of Connecticut has a program, um, Villanova, Drexel, there's there's a lot of schools that have it, but these tend to be larger schools. Um, So the student might be then looking at a larger um, undergraduate experience than perhaps would be available to them if they went sort of the traditional four-year route and then decided to apply to medical school. Um, Say these might be students who, if they were looking at smaller liberal arts colleges, may be looking at some of the most selective small liberal arts colleges. And so I I will talk about the differences between their undergraduate experience um, if they are, say, in an honors program and are accelerated track at a large public university versus um, being in perhaps a more selective smaller school. So I will definitely get them to think about that. Um, I will also get them to think about um, not every program, the medical school, is at the same campus as the undergraduate school. So, for example, Penn State's program, um, the students from medical school actually go to Philadelphia um, and are going to medical school in Philadelphia. So for those who aren't familiar with Pennsylvania geography, that's, you know, <laughs> three or four hours apart from each other. Um, so <laughs> that is not students- near the main campus, basically, yeah. is what we need yeah. to know. Yeah. Um, so students would be moving after their undergraduate years. But for some other programs, like the University of Connecticut program, the students are committing to living in that area for all seven or eight years um, that they're in the program. And so I will say, you know, you do realize that you're committing to this area, and so you better really like the area, and you better really like mm-hmm. the school because you're committing early on to being at this place for a very long time. And you know, I think another thing that I do talk to students about, too, is that I often find that a lot of good students 
are considering pre-med. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons is because maybe they have a parent who was uh, or is a doctor or because they have, that's something that's really valued in their family, this idea of having mm-hmm. a doctor in the family, um, or because there's a very clear path, right? Well, if I decide to do this, I know exactly what I need to do in order to get there. And that's a place that makes them very comfortable. Mm-hmm. And yet that doesn't mean that that's, you know, I, I don't even know what percentage percentage of those students go off and then ultimately change their mind. I know I had a lot of friends in college who intended to go to medical school and only a handful ultimately did. Um, So, you know, the other thing is I just always want them to think really hard about, is this really what you want or is this just something that someone else wants for you or is it kind of an easy choice because, Mm -hmm. you know, it's something you're very familiar with. So other things to think about um, from that perspective. What about the applications themselves? What's usually, there is a lot of extra work, and, and mm-hmm. what does that typically entail? So the extra work um, can come in, in a few different forms. Um, sometimes the application is right up front at the same time as the student is filling out the undergraduate application. Um, so the student would fill out, for example, the, the undergraduate application to a school, and they'd also fill out the additional supplemental piece that's specifically for these BSMD programs. And the BSMD supplemental part um, is often anywhere from two to four additional essays asking questions like, why do you want to be a doctor? In what ways have you pursued this? Um, If you couldn't, some ask the question of, if you couldn't be a doctor, what Mm -hmm. other potential career areas have you thought about? Because they sort of want to know, is this a more well-rounded person? Are they thinking a little broader um, and do they have other interests besides just medicine? So some of the supplemental essay questions the student fills out at the same time as the undergraduate application to the school, and oftentimes the BSMDs have earlier deadlines, generally around the November 1st deadline, sometimes a December 1st deadline. Um, and then this, the application's read. And when I was saying before, it's kind of a two-step process. Um, oftentimes the student will get a notification in December or January from the school that they have been accepted to the undergraduate program. So they maybe would get a notification, you've been accepted to the University of Connecticut, um, now you've, and, and now you've also advanced to the finalist round of our BSMD program. And if the student does advance to the finalist round, uh, then they would be invited to come usually on campus for an interview. And the interview is sometimes with an admissions officer, but almost always includes medical faculty members who are on their admissions committee for their medical school as well. And sometimes they're group interviews, sometimes they're individual interviews, but it's generally a pretty significant um, time in the interview. It's not just usually an hour. It's usually a few hours worth of interviews with multiple people. Um, And then after that interview round, the final decisions are made and the students are notified in about March. Um, sometimes those supplemental essays are not actually given to the student until they advance to that finals round. So there's a few schools where they may not get the supplemental essays even given to them initially, um, but they would get them in January when they found out that they were in consideration still. Got it. So it's going to be a little bit of a longer process. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, typically the college interview is not a challenging thing. It's really just talking to a student about their interests and who they are and how they might fit in at that campus. Um, But these are usually a lot more intense than that, especially, like you say, if you've got medical school faculty there and they're stacking you up against college grads, um, this is just not for the average high school student, and that's the mm-hmm. reality of these programs. And I think that's an important thing for people to take away. For most students, mm-hmm. the more traditional path is usually going to be your best bet. What about um, – uh, oh, man, I was just <laughs> – I had a great question teed up, and it flew out of my brain. But while I'm thinking about what that was, can you talk about um, – you know, sometimes there are going to be different admission criteria. You get through all mm-hmm. of that, but then they're also looking for different things when it comes to grades and test scores. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your sense, understanding that we can't make a blanket statement, but, right. um, you know, just some ballpark ranges for what yeah. those programs are looking for? Yeah, so the, there is a range, um, but some schools will actually publish very strict um, ad- admissions cutoffs. The College of New Jersey has an accelerated program, and they say that a student has to have 
a fourteen a minimum of a fourteen fifty on the critical reading and math sections only, not the writing section of the SAT. So the, those two together have to at least equal fourteen fifty, um, and it has to be in one test sitting, so they don't super score for their program, for example. Um, I would say generally students who are competitive for these programs, even if the school doesn't give as hard of a cutoff like mm-hmm. that or they don't publish that, um, our students are probably at least at that level, if not higher, in their SATs. So at least sort of 700s in each section of the SATs, if not higher. I would say a typical student's probably in the 1500s out of 1600. Um, Grade-wise, the student is probably, to be competitive, going to have mostly A's on mm-hmm. their transcript, probably be involved in mostly advanced placement courses by their senior year, the hardest level, whatever their high school offers. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly, they would be looking to see, does the student have advanced placement level or the equivalent at that high school in sciences? Um, so, you know, the chemistry and biology, physics kind of grades would be very important. Um, so that's the general profile, which I would say is comparable to the profile of a student who's, you know, looking at the most highly selective four-year undergraduate schools, too, yep. the most highly selective kind of Ivy League places. That's the type of student who would also be competitive, perhaps, for these types of programs. Got it. Perfect. One very quick last question for you, mm-hmm. and this is what I forgot about last time, <laughs> uh, and that is, so let's say you get into this program and you are not really excelling in the first few years. Is it really a guarantee? There's no way that, or, you know, can you get, uh, can your acceptance to medical school mm-hmm. be revoked if you're not doing as well as you yeah. should be doing, or how does that work? Um, again, and like many things in admissions, it depends, um, mm-hmm. but there are some schools that will require a certain GPA requirement to stay in the program. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, the GPA requirement is not as high as it would be perhaps if a student was just generally pre-med. It might be more like a 3.5 instead of having to be a 3.8 or a 3.9 out of Um, 4.0. But there are quite a few schools that do have a GPA requirement to stay in the program, particularly in science classes. Um, There are some schools that do not require these students to take the MCAT exam, which is the medical school entrance exam. Mm-hmm. And there are some programs that actually do require the students to get an M- to take an MCAT exam. Again, the bar of what they have to get on the MCAT may not be as high as a student going the traditional route, but they still have to pass sort of a minimum level on the MCAT in some cases to still be accepted or to still be continued in the program. Right. So there are some kind of checks and balances that the college has in many cases to make sure that this is still a student that they would want to support through all seven or eight years of the program. Got it. That is super helpful. And I think, again, there are no guarantees in life. Just because you get in doesn't mean it's automatically going to happen. You really do have to continue to excel at a pretty high level. Uh, Mary, Mary Sue, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. After the break, we're going to be talking about education loan repayment. So don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are 
are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. This next segment is probably most useful to students who are just finishing up their college educations, but there's really great advice here for anyone who's about to take on student loans. And my guess is, if you're listening, you're probably about to take on student loans. Um, because, But it's good to listen to it now because you're ultimately going to have to repay those. Um, my colleague, college finance expert Jean Mahan, is here to talk to us about education loan repayment. Hi, Jean. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thanks, and thanks for joining us again today. Sure, thanks um, for having me. Absolutely. We actually, you and I did a segment on this back in July, but mm-hmm. the grace period that most students have has recently ended, and we thought that in case people hadn't heard it before, um, now's the time to enter repayment. You're getting a lot of panicked phone calls right now. It just seemed like the right time to revisit this. Um, so. And to everyone who's listening right now, if you are experiencing some issues with debt loan repayment yourself, give us a call, 866-472-5788. We'll answer your question um, right live on air and, and hopefully help you out. But in lieu of anyone calling, um, we're happy to break if they do. Um, why don't we start with, you know, what do you need to know? Your grace period has ended. You really need to be starting to um, repay these What do you need to know to be successful? What's the first thing? So the first thing is knowing your loans. And although, you know, many borrowers have known for six months that this day of reckoning was coming, Mm -hmm. they kind of put everything on the back burner. They enjoyed this beautiful summer that we had. They were settling into their jobs or continuing to look for one. And now all of a sudden uh, their grace period has ended and their first payment is due at any minute. And so, as you said, I've been getting a lot of panicked phone calls and meeting with um, borrowers who are very anxious about how this process is going to play out for them. And for some of them, they haven't really gathered all the information they need, like knowing exactly where their loans are, who's servicing those loans, what type of loans do they have, do they have federal loans, do they have private loans, do they have a combination of both. And so if you're, if you're a borrower and you're really not sure where your loans are, the first place to go is the National Student Loan Data System, and borrowers can find that at www.nslds.ed.gov. That's the government's center for all federal loans. So if you borrowed a, a direct loan, a Perkins loan, a Stafford loan, a Grad Plus loan, a health profession student loan, and you're looking for information about where to send your check, how to get that contact information, how much do you even owe on those loans, check there. If you have um, private loans that you borrowed from an educational loan company or a credit card company, or maybe you borrowed some from your state's higher board of higher education or even your college, you can do one of two things. You can check your credit report. It's always a good idea to check your rep- credit report a few times a year anyway to make sure there's nothing funky on there. Um, but this is a great place to find those private or institutional loans that you may have borrowed. And the final place to go, obviously, is the financial aid office at the school or schools that you attended. They've got a record of all the information on the loans that you borrowed and can at least get you to the, to the starting gate on those and, and help you find out where these loans might be at, at at present. So first, knowing what your loans are is the, is the biggest step and, you know, setting up a spreadsheet so that you know where all of them are. Another great place to look is um, for federal loans is studentloans.gov. And that's a great site because it allows, it has all your um, federal student loan data in there and it allows you to import that data into their repayment calculators so that you, if you've signed up just because that was sort of the default plan, you signed up for the 10-year re- repayment plan, and now you're seeing that that's going to be way too expensive for you, it'll put all your um, student loan data into this calculator, and it will show you the different types of repayment plans that you're eligible for. So maybe you'll see that a graduated repayment where you're making smaller payments for the first four four to five years of repayment might be a better option for you, or you might see that you qualify for an income-based repayment, which could significantly lower your monthly payment 
based on your debt-to-income ratio. So definitely making use of that calculator can help you. And once you've sort of gone through that and you've seen what's available to you, you can reach out to your servicer, which you found on either your credit report or NSLDS, and work with them to see... um, to have them help you get into a, a better, more optimal payment plan for you. Right. With the goal, obviously, of making it possible for you to make those payments exactly. on a timely basis, which is the whole point. Yes. You have some interesting ideas about um, how you make those payments that mm-hmm. um, I'd love for you to share with our um, audience, um, starting with maybe having them automatically deducted from your bank account. Yes. I think auto debit is a great way to, to avoid missing payments. You can either have it pulled out of your regular checking or savings account, or you can set up a separate account that's only used for student loan repayment. And allowing the servicer access to that account to automatically pull the payments will give you an interest rate reduction of 0.25%. And it will also give you some flexibility over the payment due date, because generally the servicers pull on four different days of the month, and so maybe you're, you get your paycheck on, you know, the 15th of the month, and so you don't necessarily want them pulling the money, the servicer pulling out your payment on the 7th of the month when you might not have as much money in there. Right. So it gives you a little bit more flexibility, as, you know, in working around your budget with all your other bills. So auto debit is a great way to avoid, you know, missing a payment or making a payment late. And we've recently learned um, that that borrowers who do the public service loan forgiveness program should mm-hmm. use auto debit because if they make their payment too early, it could um, have a negative impact on their repayment. So using auto debit means that it's going to come out on exactly that day. And um, again, and that interest rate reduction, you know, some borrowers might say, well, it's only 0.25%. And I had a borrower say to me the other day, well, it's only $10 a month difference for me. And I said, but that's $120 over the course of the year. Nope. that can be applied to your principal on your loans, which may mean that you'll get out of repayment faster and less um, less costly. <laughs> and, right, pay, pay less money when all mm-hmm. is said and done. Right. It's amazing right. how, you know, I would never, no one would ever take a $10 bill and throw it out the window, but that's essentially what that person was saying, that ah, right. I, it's $10, what does right. that matter? So, And I would encourage borrowers to, to try to use something called an amortization calculator, it's my best friend. I'm so much in love with the amortization calculators <laughs> that I've used because really it, you can show a borrower, you know, if you have an extra $10 or $25 or $50, and it doesn't have to be every month, but this is what you'll save in interest payments, and this is how much faster you'll get out of repayment because I think most borrowers don't want to be in repayment for 15 or 20 years, but they no. sometimes don't see that it's an option to get out faster. And just using a calculator like that, um, which you can find online, will enable them to see even small little extra payments against their principal can make a huge difference in the long run. Right, in the long, life of the loan. Mm-hmm. You also had a great idea about setting up a special account um, for the purpose of making loan payments, which can be super useful if you have um, a co-signer or if you are a co-signer. So yeah. tell us a little bit more about that, yeah. how that works. So at College Coach, we call these buffer accounts. But if you go into your local bank and say, I want to set up a buffer account, they won't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but what it is is basically a checking or savings account that both the borrower and the co-borrower open together. And the borrower makes sure that the payments are in there every month. And maybe even during the grace period, if you were fortunate enough to be working, you could have saved a little bit, put it into your buffer account so that you have a couple of months cushion in there. And so you allow the bar, the um, servicer to withdraw your funds automatically, but the co-borrower has access to the account, so they can make sure before the payment is due that there's actually sufficient funds in that account to make the to meet the payment. And that way, if there is anything like a co-borrower release, where after a certain number of on-time payments, the co-borrower can be released from the loan, you'll be sure that that borrower is going to make those certain number of on-time payments. And also that they're not making them late because if a co-borrower has signed on one of these loans and the borrower is late on the payments, it starts pinging the co-signer's credit history as well. And if the borrower were to go into default, then the co-borrower is responsible for the loan. So it's a great way to keep everyone kind of honest and on track and uh, making sure that payments are made on time. And again, using that account with auto debit really just makes it a foolproof process. 
right? As a parent, it, because typically I would think that most co-signers are parents. I mean, mm-hmm. I think the goal is absolutely send your child out into the world. Here you go. This is your debt. You owe it now. Please pay it. Um, but if you're not keeping a close eye on that, they could slowly chip away at and possibly ruin your credit. You don't want that right. either. This seems right. like a really, really great idea. It is. I, um, I, I've been recommending this for years, and, it, and when the people that have used it have really said it, it's made it a lot easier. And another little tip, you know, when you open this account, you might get a debit card to go along with it. Cut it up into a million little pieces so that you <laughs> never have the temptation to use that account to sort of like um, back you up if you've, if you've uh, drawn a, gone a little short in your monthly right. budget that month. So Yes, that is a very good <laughs> idea. I love that. Yeah. What, what if you are falling short in a given month and you 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 thought you had the money or you you know you something else happened and you you just you're not going to have the money to pay your um, bill that particular month what's the best thing to do just kind of skip your payment and try and get the next one or no. would you recommend not doing that or, or doing something I highly recommend not doing that because yes. As I've said to borrowers for years now, if you can't make the payment this month, how can you make two payments next month? It just yep. usually doesn't add up. And so at the first sign of trouble, even if you just know it's only going to be a month or two, the borrower should reach out to their servicer immediately and say, you know, I had a, a, an automi- automobile disaster this month or my roof caved in or whatever it was, and just say, and I'm not going to be able to make my full payment. Now, uh, usually they'll offer, the servicer will offer the borrower what's called a forbearance, which means that you either make a lower monthly payment, could be just an interest-only payment, or no payment at all for a specified period of time. It's not reported negatively on your credit history, so, you know, clearly it's a good thing to do if you're having any problems, because it's not going to be that you're going to be seeing negative information on your credit history, that, you know, it's going to follow you. So I think that that's really key is to make sure you're reaching out. One thing that borrowers need to understand about forbearances, though, is that even if you have subsidized loans, if they're in a period of forbearance, then those loans will be accruing interest as well as any unsubsidized loans that the borrower has. And at the end of the deferment, any unpaid interest will be added to the principal balance. So although these can be a very good tool to keep you out of trouble, they can also be costly. So try to use them um, as infrequently as possible, you know, and just try to be more proactive about making sure that you are going to have the money. Again, sometimes if you, you know, you might have signed up for a payment plan that really has become untenable for you. You know, it's, your expenses are much more than you originally thought. You can't make this payment. And so, you know, maybe using the forbearance time also to reconsider what your payment plan options are and, and, you know, redo the payment plan to make it work better. But point taken, which is uh, you really had to go out to dinner with your friends, is not a really good excuse for spending that money that you should have because, oh, well, I could just get a forbearance. Well, you really don't want that forbearance. That would be, at the end of the day, that's going to cost you a lot more money on the back end. So don't do it. Okay, well, there are... a lot of companies out there that they're that will you know sort of help you restructure your debt for a fee. Of course, mm-hmm. um, is this something that you know the average person really likely doesn't know a whole lot about this stuff? So, is that potentially money well spent? What's your advice on on using those companies? Generally speaking, these companies are offering to do something for you for a fee that you can do for yourself for free, F-R-E-E. Yes. <laughs> and um, I usually, they, they can't always do what they promise. Um, and I would suggest that student borrowers who are unsure of what they need to do can first go to the studentaid.gov website or studentloans.gov and, and educate themselves about what the options are for them. Don't just take the word of a company that has sprung up to, you know, help because that they see that there are so many student loan borrowers out there that are in trouble and they've decided that they're going to be the ones to help fix this problem for you. Generally, you don't have to use it at all. You don't need to use these companies at all. You can do it yourself. You can, like I said, educate yourself. Those two websites that I mentioned, studentloans.ed.gov and and um, studentaid.ed.gov are very readable, very easy to understand. Um, and once you've read those over and you have a basic understanding of what your rights and responsibilities are and what you have for options to reach out to your servicer and work with them directly, 
the money that you're spending for these companies can be money that you're putting towards your student loans. Yep. And that would be so, so much better for you in the long run than these companies who usually, um, I mean, we saw a lot of these com- companies spring up during the mortgage crisis, and I think it's, it's pretty much the same thing all over again. Right, right. So a little bit of legwork, uh, save your mm-hmm. money, put it towards your loans, uh, and really try to focus on that yourself. We do. Um, we can uh, work with families or students, recent grads who are interested in just getting some advice about how to restructure what they're doing. So um, if you go to our website, www.getintocollege.com, um, you can find information there about uh, reaching out to someone, and you could schedule an hour with one of our experts like Jean. You could talk to Jean here. Uh, and um, again, I'm not sure that you would need to do that, but we would be quite a bit cheaper and um, we can help you look at your different options, but you could also do the legwork yourself and and probably get yourself a solution by, just by working with your servicer. Jean, and thank you so much. Yeah, okay. sorry. Oh, I was going to say too that I, I'd also recommend that uh, borrowers reach out to their financial aid offices too for help. Because um, when students default or are delinquent on their loans, that, that is, a, is a negative on, for the school. And right. so, um, you know, you can always reach out to them because they may be even able to make some suggestions. And for most students, that's a trusted agent. You know, it's somebody that maybe they don't know personally, but, you know, it's affiliated with their school. And so that would be another option that I would suggest. These companies, I don't think, really are, you know, are going to work in the borrower's best interest. Right, exactly. Jean, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I actually think we covered some different things than we did in the last time we Great. talked about this, which was back in July, if anyone's yeah. interested in going to our archives. Um, next up is what to do if your early decision and early action results are not what you hoped for. And, well, perhaps you haven't really done anything else while you were waiting. So now you're under the gun. Um, we're going to be right back to talk to Kara Courtois about that. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everybody. Uh, Before the break, I mentioned that we would be discussing what to do if your early decision and early action results were... In two words, not good. Uh, and that Kara Courtois, who's a former Barnard admissions officer and former teacher, and my current college coach colleague, uh, was going to be here to talk to us about that. And she is. Hi, Kara. Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. So there are a few different facets of this that I want to talk about. So I think there are students who submitted a couple of applications and then basically thought, 
well, I'm going to worry about the rest of my applications later. Um, and then there are students who submitted uh, a few, maybe have their other applications ready to go, but um, now the results coming back are not good and they're worried that maybe the application package that they put together wasn't what it should be. So um, I guess let's start with uh, the, the basics, which is decisions are starting to roll in. I don't know about you, but my kids have already started, my students have already started to receive decisions. There are a lot of decisions, I think, that are coming on the 11th, um, i.e. tomorrow. Uh, there are probably a number of decisions that are going to come in in the week and a half after that. Um, what What's your recommendation for the student who perhaps got into um, a handful of the early schools, but not into any of the schools that were his or her top choices, and they haven't done anything else. What do they even do at this point? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and in our short segment, we'll try to cover that. Yes. Um, I, I think the first thing is that this, you know, our recommendation would Number one is to just try and get as honest as possible with the rest of the list because there are many, many students I've certainly met over the years where the list started out and it was really top-heavy, meaning that mm-hmm. it had so many reach schools on it and part of it was you know, just absolutely not being clear on what an acceptance rate was and what it meant to be in the lower part of the middle 50% test scores and you know, how that matters or doesn't, you know, really can impact an overall decision and all the other pieces. Mm-hmm. So a deny, um, which I always think is better than a defer because it really forces us, you know, the student and whomever is working with them, parent, teacher, nobody, <laughs> you know, just to get honest. Um, so I think, and part of that too is really, I encourage students, you know, if they're not if they haven't been talking to their guidance counselor, if they haven't been talking to their parents or any sort of trusted advisor, you know, a teacher who might have written their recommendation to sit down with them and say, I don't know what to do here. You know, I really thought I was going to get into some of these. um, And now I'm looking at these other schools and and they're equally far reaching. Hopefully that's part of the honesty that they're looking at, you know, what are the real acceptance rates? So I Mm -hmm. would say recalibrate you know, for many, many students. But in that, you know, make sure if you haven't shared your application, your essay, you know, all the parts of it with somebody you trust and value their opinion, um, again, guidance counselor, teacher, you know, someone who's a consultant like we are, you know, overall, that's really important to do that. You know, maybe the essay was completely off target. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe there's some pieces that they can control and make some changes on that could have an impact. Yeah, and I would say that would be particularly important for students maybe who waited to the last minute, who submitted an application that um, nobody looked at but them, right? So there yeah. could be tons of typos there. The, like you said, the essay could have been completely off target, or it could have been a great topic, but they just put no time into making it as good as it could be. Um, I, I do want to stress for students that... Um, for those students out there who took a lot of time with that initial application and um, who did get into the schools that they thought they would. So if you got into the schools that were matches and safeties but didn't get into your reach schools, that's probably not a sign that you had a bad application. It's probably uh-huh. just you know confirmation that those reach schools were in fact reaches um, and not that, you, you know, you were going to, because you were super excellent, that you were going to somehow, um, you know, ha- get someone overlooked that your test scores weren't quite what they should have been <laughs> or that your grades weren't quite what they should have been. Um, that's not a time to throw out your application. But if you didn't get into schools that when you look at the, you know, at the results for, you know, average SAT scores, average GPA, other students from your school who applied and did get in and you, and clearly you should have probably gotten in and you didn't, then I think that is like really great advice. You might really want to take a look at that application and say, gee, is, are there things that I could have done differently here? Um, and, and think about that. I also think that, you know, again, I think sometimes students now have, they think they're going to apply to another 10 schools 
mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they haven't done anything. So what do you think is a good number to try to accomplish between now and typically January 1 is the big next deadline for applications? Yeah, I mean, I don't know who it is on our team that's always said that, you know, that basically more application, it's it's not necessarily yielding better results. It's not, let me throw out more darts and hope something hits. Yep. So, you know, it's quality over quantity. And I would say realistically six is probably the top range, you know, mm-hmm. if you're looking at it being December 10th. And uh, most importantly, the guidance office probably needs a final list from the student by no later than even the 15th. Um, which is a shout out to those who might be waiting <laughs> until the last day of school. Um, yes. But I'd say six is probably the number to, to say that those would be, you could submit six quality applications that, you know, don't um, sound, you know, you haven't just recycled a response from one school to the next. Because that is one thing I would caution students against also is that, yes, there are certain, you know, schools that will overlap in, the, in what they're asking in their supplemental questions, but that doesn't mean that the response can completely overlap and really shouldn't if you've taken the time to really get to know that school mm-hmm. and to distinguish yourself in that pool. You need to be able to share how you are a fit if that's the question. So doing more than six makes it very open for those kind of mistakes and um, making it feel very uh, you know, lackluster and not distinguishing yourself, in which case you're better off going out to dinner with that 65 or $80, you know, that you would have <laughs> spent on the application. Right, exactly. Go drown your sorrows in some really good sushi. Um, yeah, but take your parents out. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think, um, and, and probably really important to point out, even though we've said it already probably twice this segment, but we'll say it again, those six applications should not be six reaches, they yes. should be. Maybe you're going to apply to one more reach. Maybe it's a more reasonable reach than you chose for your early round of applications. Um, maybe you don't apply to any more reaches because all of your early applications were two reaches. Um, and maybe you want to really focus more on the match and safety options um, because there's nothing worse than getting no's from all of your early choices and then getting the same thing uh, in April. The beauty of doing early applications is it does allow you a little bit of time to recalibrate if you need to. Again, not everyone needs to, but if you need to, this is the time to do that, um, not the time to say, well, gee, that Ivy didn't accept me, so now I'm going to all go and apply to all the rest of them. Uh, you know, generally not the right way to go there. Um, what, are some, what are some other things um, that come to mind for students who are um, really, you know, one of the reasons I encourage students to get their work done before they hear from their early schools is because you're generally not in a great frame of mind when you've just heard no from your top choice or your top choices. Mm-hmm. How do you, you know, how, what's your advice around kind of dealing with that and not letting it seep into the work that you're trying to do for these other applications? Yeah, I mean, boy, that is this week is really the time that I I really say to students if they've applied to a REACH school that they're waiting for to put the pedal to the metal and try Mm -hmm. and use as much positive energy and, uh, you know, the extra sort of um, jitters that they might have or, you know, nerves that they might have running through their body waiting for these decisions to say, you know what, carry the umbrella for rain. If you end up writing a couple extra supplements that you never end up submitting because you got into your top choice, it's a great problem to have. Yeah. But you'll never kick, kick yourself, and it's a great life lesson, you know, to be overprepared. So that's, you know, I, I definitely find that you're just, I've never heard a student say, oh, bummer, I wish I hadn't done all that extra work. Um, more importantly, they're able to receive whatever the response is, especially if it's a defer. You know, because I find so many students that get deferred from an early action or early decision school read that initially as a complete deny. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that they're down in the dumps. And I think, you know what, if you've done the other work that we've been suggesting, um, then, you know what, you're okay. Because I think we can pour some positive energy then into the fact that the door is not closed. But I don't mm-hmm. see that as a wide open door. <laughs> you know, right. I see it more as a reminder, you know, look more towards your targets 
you know, with, if, especially if you don't have any sort of early decision commitment that's being made, um, and use that energy uh, as best you can. And, and again, try to, try to speak with, if not your guidance counselor, you know, someone that can really sit down and be honest. And one thing I would say in that a lot of schools have Naviance, and that's, you know, uh, if someone's listening and doesn't know what that is, they probably don't have it at their school if you're a senior and you don't know it at this point. But I have found a lot of students that increasingly have Naviance at their school, but they're only utilizing it for telling their guidance counselor where they're ultimately applying. Mm-hmm. They're not u- using all the stats that are available, especially to look at the scattergrams and charts that are available to say, you know, these are the stats from your high school, who's been right. admitted overall. And that visual, I find, especially showing parents specifically, be honest. You know, even if you, you know, again, going to that point, you don't want to apply to eight reaches now, if you, especially if you got it, you know, denied from or deferred from an early reach school. You really want to be honest. And if you're in the, you know, lower part of a middle 50%, that's a reach for you, and you yep. want to, you know, look at that. And I think um, just to, to wrap this up, one thing, you mentioned a deferral. We're actually going to be talking about deferrals in a, not next week, but I think the week after that, we're going to be talking about how mm-hmm. to handle those deferrals. So thank you for giving me that opportunity to plug that show. Um, I also um, I also think that, you know, if you're really disappointed in the moment, maybe for the next day or two, all you do is kind of take care of some basic yeah. stuff. You, you know, you send out test scores, you get in touch with their guidance counselor and set up an appointment. You do you you get some stuff done that doesn't require you to really be excited um, about your schools, and you you wait until the kind of the disappointment wears off a little bit before you start writing. Um, you may not yeah. have that luxury, but if you do, that's something that you might want to think about. Kara, thank Absolutely. you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Beth. Absolutely. A couple of things um, to note for our listeners. First, we want to know about you. We want to know more about you so we can do a better job of giving you the information you want. Um, So we've put together a survey to help us do that. The survey is open until at least the end of the year. Uh, You'll find it at getintocollege.com forward slash survey. Pretty straightforward. Getintocollege.com forward slash survey. Um, And as a bonus, if you fill it out, we're going to give you access to two free guides on avoiding the pitfalls of college essay writing and the top 10 ways to find private scholarship. So lots of good information there. Uh, Next week's show, we're going to be doing another installment in our high school plan series. Uh, In in an extension of our conversation this week, we're going to be discussing the best courses and extracurricular activities for potential pre-med students. We're also going to be talking about pharmacy program admissions for all of you budding pharmacists out there. And finally, we're going to take a closer look at how income is treated in the expected family contribution calculation or the EFC calculation. So you're not going to want to miss that. As a reminder, every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website and available for free download from iTunes. Uh, But if you do want to listen live, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.